Chapter thirty six of Two Years Before the Mast. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Years Before the Mast by Richard Henry Dana, Jr. Chapter thirty six Hurrah for Yankee Land. Friday, September sixteenth. Latitude thirty eight degrees north, longitude sixty nine degrees zero minutes west. A fine southwest wind every hour carrying us nearer towards the land, all hands on deck at the dog-watch, and nothing talked about but our getting in, where we should make the land, whether we should arrive before Sunday, going to church, how Boston would look, friends, wages paid, and the like. Everyone was in the best of spirits, and the voyage being nearly at an end, the strictness of discipline was relaxed, for it was not necessary to order in a cross tone what all were ready to do with a will. The differences and quarrels which a long voyage breeds on board a ship were forgotten, and everyone was friendly. And two men, who had been on the eve of a fight half the voyage, were laying out a plan together for a cruise on shore. When the mate came forward, he talked to the men, and said we should be on George's bank before tomorrow noon, and joked with the boys, promising to go and see them, and to take them down to Marblehead in a coach. Saturday, 17th. The wind was light all day, which kept us back somewhat, but a fine breeze springing up at nightfall, we were running fast in towards the land. At six o'clock we expected to have the ship hove to for soundings, as a thick fog, coming up, showed we were near them, but no order was given, and we kept on our way. Eight o'clock came, and the watch went below, and for the whole of the first hour the ship was driving on, with studding sails out, low and aloft, and the night as dark as a pocket. At two bells the captain came on deck and said a word to the mate, when the studding sails were hauled into the tops, or boom-ended, the after-yards backed, the deep sea lead carried forward, and everything got ready for sounding. A man on the spritsail yard with the lead, another on the cat-head with a handful of the line coiled up, another on the fore-chains, another in the main-chains, each with a quantity of the line coiled away in his hand. All ready there, Ford! Aye, aye, sir! Heave! Watch! Oh, watch! Sings out the man on the spritsail yard, and the heavy lead drops into the water. Watch! Oh, watch! Balls the man on the cat head, as the last fake of the quail drops from his hand, and Watch oh, watch is shouted by each one as the line falls from his hold until it comes to the mate who tends the lead and has the line in quails on the quarter deck. Eighty fathoms and no bottom, a depth as great as the height of St. Peter's. The line is snatched in a block upon the swifter, and three or four men haul it in and coil it away. The afteryards are braced full, the studding soles hauled out again, and in a few minutes more the ship had her whole way upon her. At four bells backed again, hove the lead, and soundings. At sixty fathoms, hurrah for Yankee land! Hand over hand we hauled the lead in, and the captain, taking it to the light, found black mud on the bottom, studding sails taken in, after yards filled away, and ship kept on under easy sail all night, the wind dying away. 
The soundings on the American coast are so regular that a navigator knows as well where he has made land by the soundings as he would by seeing land. Black mud is the soundings of Block Island. As you go towards Nantucket, it changes to a dark sand. Then, sand in white shells, and on George's banks, white sand, and so on. As our soundings showed us to be off Block Island, our course was due east, to Nantucket Shoals and the South Channel. But the wind died away and left us becalmed in a thick fog, in which we lay the whole of Sunday. At noon of Sunday, 18th, Block Island bore, by calculation, northwest one quarter west, 15 miles, but the fog was so thick all day that we could see nothing. Having got through the ship's duty and washed and changed our clothes, we went below and had a fine time overhauling our chests, laying aside the clothes we meant to go ashore in, and throwing overboard all that were worn out and good for nothing. Away went the woolen caps, in which we had carried hides upon our heads for sixteen months, on the coasts of California, the duck frocks for tarring down rigging, and the worn-out and darned mittens and patched woolen trousers which had stood the tub of Cape Horn. We hove them overboard with a good will, for there is nothing like being quit of the very last appendages, remnants, and mementos of our hard fortune. We got our chests all ready for going ashore, ate the last duff we expected to have on board the ship alert, and talked confidently about matters on shore as though our anchor were on the bottom. "'Who'll go to church with me a week from today?' "'I will,' says Jack, who said I to everything. "'Go away, saltwater,' says Tom. "'As soon as I get both legs ashore, I'm going to shoe my heels and button my ears behind me and start off into the bush, a straight course, and not stop till I'm out of the sight of saltwater. "'Oh, belay that!' If you once get moored stem and stern in old Barnes' grog shop with a coal fire ahead in the bar under your lee, you won't see daylight for three weeks. No, says Tom. I'm going to knock off grog and go and board at the home and see if they won't ship me for a deacon. And I, says Bill, am going to buy a quadrant and ship for navigator of a hingham packet. Harry White swore he would take up rooms at the Tremont house and set up for a gentleman. He knew his wages would hold out for two weeks or so. These and the like served to pass the time while we were lying waiting for a breeze to clear up the fog and send us on our way. Towards night a moderate breeze sprang up. The fog, however, continuing as thick as before, and we kept on to the eastward. About the middle of the first watch a man on the forecastle sang out, in a tone which showed that there was not a moment to be lost. Hard up the helm! And a great ship loomed up out of the fog, coming directly down upon us. She luffed at the same moment, and we just passed each other, our spanker boom grazing over her quarter. The officer of the deck had only time to hail, and she answered as she went into the fog again something about Bristol. Probably a whaleman from Bristol, Rhode Island, bound out. The fog continued through the night with a very light breeze, before which we ran to the eastward, literally feeling our way along. The lead was heaved every two hours, 
in the gradual change from black mud to sand showed that we were approaching Nantucket South Shoals. On Monday morning the increased depth in the dark blue color of the water, and the mixture of shells and white sand which we brought up upon sounding, showed that we were in the channel, and nearing George's. Accordingly the ship's head was put directly to the northward, and we stood on with perfect confidence in the soundings. Though we had not taken an observation for two days, and the difference of an eighth of a mile out of the way might put us ashore. Throughout the day a provokingly light wind prevailed, and at eight o'clock a small fishing schooner, which we passed, told us we were nearly abreast of Chatham Lights. Just before midnight a light land breeze sprang up, which carried us well along, and at four o'clock, thinking ourselves to the northward of Race Point, we hauled upon the wind and stood into the bay, west-northwest, for Boston Light, and began firing guns for a pilot. Our watch went below at four o'clock, but could not sleep, for the watch on deck were banging away at the guns every few minutes. And indeed we cared very little about it, for we were in Boston Bay, and if fortune favored us, we could all sleep in the next night, with nobody to call the watch every four hours. We turned out of our own will at daybreak to get a sight of land. In the gray of the morning, one or two small fishing smacks peered out of the mist, and when the broad day broke upon us, there lay the low sand hills of Cape Cod over our larboard quarter, and before us the wide waters of Massachusetts Bay with here and there a sail gliding over its smooth surface. As we drew in towards the mouth of the harbor, as towards a focus, the vessels began to multiply, until the bay seemed alive with sails gliding about in all directions, some on the wind and others before it, as they were bound to or from the emporium of trade and center of the bay. It was a stirring sight for us, who had been months on the ocean without seeing anything but two solitary sails, and over two years without seeing more than three or four traders on an almost desolate coast. There were the little coasters bound to and from the various towns along the south shore, down in the bight of the bay, and to the eastward, here and there a square-rigged vessel standing out to seaward, and far in the distance, beyond Cape Ann, was the smoke of a steamer stretching along in a narrow black cloud upon the water. Every sight was full of beauty and interest. We were coming back to our homes, and the signs of civilization and prosperity and happiness, from which we had been so long banished, were multiplying about us. The high land of Cape Ann and the rocks and shore of Cohasset were full in sight, the lighthouses standing like sentries in white before the harbors, and even the smoke from the chimneys on the plains of Hingham was seen rising slowly in the morning air. One of our boys was the son of a bucket maker, and his face lighted up as he saw the tops of the well-known hills which surrounded his native place. About ten o'clock a little boat came bobbing over the water and put a pilot on board and sheered off in pursuit of other vessels bound in. Being now within the scope of the telegraph stations, our signals were run up at the fore, 
and in half an hour afterwards the owner on change, or in his counting-room, knew that his ship was below, and the landlords, runners, and sharks in Ann Street learned that there was a rich prize for them down in the bay, a ship from round the horn, with a crew to be paid off with two years' wages. The wind continuing very light, all hands were sent aloft to strip off the chafing gear, and battens, parcelings, roundings, hoops, mats, and leathers came flying from aloft, and left the rigging neat and clean, stripped of all its sea bandaging. The last touch was put to the vessel by painting the skysail poles, and I was sent up to the fore with a bucket of white paint and a brush and touched her off from the truck to the eyes of the royal rigging. At noon we lay becalmed off the lower lighthouse, and, it being about slack water, we made little progress. A firing was heard in the direction of Hingham, and the pilot said there was a review there. The Hingham boy got wind of this, and said if the ship had been twelve hours sooner he should have been down among the soldiers and in the booths, having a grand time. As it was, we had little prospect of getting in before night. About two o'clock a breeze sprang up ahead, from the westward, and we began beating up against it. A full-rigged brig was beating in at the same time, and we passed each other in our tacks, sometimes one, and sometimes the other working to windward, as the wind and tide favored or opposed. It was my trick at the wheel from two till four, and I stood my last helm, making between nine hundred and a thousand hours which I had spent at the helms of our two vessels. The tide beginning to set against us, we made slow work, and the afternoon was nearly spent before we got abreast of the inner light. In the meanwhile, several vessels were coming down, outward bound, among which a fine large ship, with yards squared, fair wind and fair tide, passed us like a racehorse, the men running out upon her yards to rig out the sitting booms. Towards sundown, the wind came off in flaws, sometimes blowing very stiff, so that the pilot took in the royals, and then it died away, when, in order to get us in before the tide became too strong, the royals were set again. As this kept us running up and down the rigging, one hand was sent aloft at each masthead to stand by to loose and furl the sails at the moment of the order. I took my place at the fore and loosed and furled the royal five times before Rainsford Island and the castle. At one tack we ran so near to Rainsford Island that looking down from the royal yard, the island with its hospital buildings, nice graveled walks, and green plats, seemed to lie directly under our yard-arms. So close is the channel to some of these islands that we ran the end of our flying jib-boom over one of the outworks of the fortifications on George's Island, and had an opportunity of seeing the advantages of that point as a fortified place. For, in working up the channel, we presented a fair stem and stern for raking from the batteries three or four times. One gun might have knocked us to pieces. We had all set our hearts on getting up to town before night and going ashore, but the tide beginning to run strong against us, and the wind, what there was of it, being ahead, we made but little by weather-bowing the tide, 
and the pilot gave orders to cock-bill the anchor and overhaul the chain. Making two long stretches, which brought us into the roads under the lee of the castle, he clued up the topsails and let go the anchor, and for the first time, since leaving San Diego, one hundred and thirty-five days, our anchor was upon bottom. In half an hour more we were lying snugly with all sails furled, safe in Boston Harbor. Our long voyage ended. The well-known scene about us, and the dome of the State House fading in the western sky, the lights of the city starting into sight, as the darkness came on, and at nine o'clock the clangor of the bells, ringing their custom peals, among which the Boston boys try to distinguish the well-known tone of the Old South. We had just done furling the sails when a beautiful little pleasure boat luffed up into the wind under our quarter, and the junior partner of the firm to which our ship belonged, Mr. Hooper, jumped on board. I saw him from the mizzen topsail yard and knew him well. He shook the captain by the hand and went into the cabin, and in a few minutes came up and inquired of the mate for me. The last time I had seen him I was in the uniform of an undergraduate of Harvard College, and now, to his astonishment, there came down from aloft a rough alley-looking fellow with duck trousers and red shirt, long hair, and face burnt as dark as an Indian's. We shook hands, and he congratulated me upon my return and my appearance of health and strength, and said that my friends were all well. He had seen some of my family a few days before. I thanked him for telling me what I should not have dared to ask, and if the first bringer of unwelcome news hath but a losing office, and his tongue sounds ever after like a sullen bell. Certainly I ought ever to remember this man and his words with pleasure. The captain went up to the town in the boat with Mr. Hooper, and left us to pass another night on board ship, and to come up with the morning's tide under command of the pilot. So much did we feel ourselves to be already at home, in anticipation that our plain supper of hard bread and salt beef were barely touched, and many on board, to whom this was the first voyage, could scarcely sleep. As for myself, by one of those anomalous changes of feeling of which we are all the subjects, I found that I was in a state of indifference, for which I could by no means account. A year before, while carrying hides on the coast, the assurance that in a twelve-month we should see Boston made me half-wild. But now that I was actually there, and in sight of home, the emotions which I had so long anticipated feeling I did not find and in their place was a state of very nearly entire apathy. Something of the same experience was related to me by a sailor whose first voyage was one of five years upon the northwest coast. He had left home a lad, and when after so many years of hard and trying experience, he found himself homeward bound, such was the excitement of his feelings that during the whole passage he could talk and think of nothing else but his arrival, and how and when he should jump from the vessel and take his way directly home. Yet, when the vessel was made fast to the wharf, and the crew dismissed, he seemed suddenly to lose all feeling about the matter. He told me that he went below and changed his dress, 
took some water from the scuttle-butt and washed himself leisurely, overhauled his chest and put his clothes all in order, took his pipe from its place, filled it, and sitting down upon his chest, smoked it slowly for the last time. Here he looked around upon the forecastle in which he had spent so many years, and being alone and his shipmates scattered, began to feel acutely unhappy. Home became almost a dream, and it was not until his brother, who had heard of the ship's arrival, came down into the forecastle and told him of things at home, and who were waiting there to see him, that he could realize where he was, and feel interest enough to put him in motion towards that place, for which he had longed, and of which he had dreamed for years. There is probably so much of excitement in prolonged expectation that the quiet realizing of it produces a momentary stagnation of feeling as well as of effort. It was a good deal so with me. The activity of preparation, the rapid progress of the ship, the first making land, the coming up the harbor, and old scenes breaking upon the view, produced a mental as well as bodily activity from which the change to perfect stillness, when both expectation and the necessity of labor failed, left a calmness, almost an indifference, from which I must be roused by some new excitement. And the next morning, when all hands were called, and we were busily at work clearing the decks, and getting everything in readiness for going up to the wharves, loading the guns for a salute, loosening the sails, and manning the windlass, mind and body seemed to wake together. About ten o'clock a sea breeze sprang up, and the pilot gave orders to get the ship under way. All hands manned the windlass, and the long-drawn, Yo! Heave! Ho! which we had last heard dying away among the desolate hills of San Diego, soon brought the anchor to the bows, and with a fair wind and tide, a bright sunny morning, Sunday royals and skysails set, the ensign streamer, signals, and pennant flying, and with our guns firing, we came swiftly and handsomely up to the city. And no sooner was it on the bottom than the decks were filled with people, Custom House officers, Topliff's agent to inquire for news, others inquiring for friends on board, or left upon the coast, dealers in Greece besieging the galley to make a bargain with a cook for his slush, loafers in general, and last and chief, boarding house runners to secure their men. Nothing can exceed the obliging disposition of these runners and the interest they take in a sailor returned from a long voyage with a plenty of money. Two or three of them at different times took me by the hand, pretended to remember me perfectly, were quite sure I had boarded with them before I sailed, were delighted to see me back, gave me their cards, had a handcart waiting on the wharf on purpose to take my things up, would lend me a hand to get my chest ashore, bring a bottle of grog on board if we did not haul in immediately, and the like. In fact, we could hardly get clear of them to go aloft and furl the sails. Sail after sail for the hundredth time in fair weather and in foul, we furled now for the last time together, and came down and took the warp ashore, manned the capstan, and with a chorus, which waked up half north end, and ran among the buildings in the dock, 
we hauled her into the wharf. The city bells were just ringing one, when the last turn was made fast, and the crew dismissed. And in five minutes more, not a soul was left on board the good ship alert, but the old shipkeeper, who had come down from the counting-house to take charge of her.